I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Nadine Dietz, host of CMO Moves. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thanks so much for stopping by today and to give you a quick overview on what to expect. CMO Moves is all about game-changing leaders, their incredible journeys, the moves that they've made, and most importantly, their personal stories of how they got to be the leaders of some of the world's most exciting brands. I hope you'll enjoy their stories as much as I do and take away a few tips and some inspiration for your day. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to CMO Moves. Today I am here with Tim Ellis, who is the CMO of the NFL. Tim, hi and welcome to the show. Hi, I'm very happy to be here. I'm happy that you could be here. We're sitting here in beautiful Cannes, having a cappuccino and uh, looking at the ocean out there. So I'm, you know, I'll try not to get uh, distracted by the ocean, but uh, <laughs> it is so nice to actually be sitting here with you in person and to be able to have this chat with you today. Yeah, it's fantastic. I, I, I usually try to come to Cannes every two or three years because I, I feel like it's just so inspiring and I get a chance to network with smart people in marketing and also other clients. So it's, uh, it's very well worth my time. Yeah, and we just literally, you and I, partaked in the CMO Symposium where we had about 30 people together talking about some good topics, so appreciate you participating in that um, and sharing your amazing points of view, and we're going to dig into that now. Okay. So before we jump in, because I have a lot on my list to talk to you about, let's start with you talking about the role that you took on and why you took that on with the NFL. Sure. Well, I was at Activision, a uh, video game company where you have Call of Duty and Destiny, Guitar Hero, several other titles, for about seven years. Um, and, you know, seven years is actually quite a long time for CMO these days. But I loved it there, and the industry was changing rapidly, changing economic models and changing the whole marketing scheme. And so it was, it was a fascinating time to be there. Uh, I also learned a lot about engaging young people. Um, and and I, I, I guess I could say that over those seven years, we were essentially engaging and pulling people away in many ways from the NFL over those years. But I had always been a crazy you know, football fan. I love, I love pretty much all sports, but football is probably high on the, highest on the list. And so you know, there weren't very many companies that could have lured me away from my position there, but I'd always wanted to be in sports. And so when I got a call from the NFL, I was immediately intrigued. Uh, I, of course, wanted to know what it is they were looking for. I had some ideas myself on what I think that they needed to do from a marketing and branding perspective. 
But um, quickly when we began to, you know, I began to hear more about what they felt like they needed to do by evolving their marketing program, I began to feel like, oh my God, that's like, that's me, mm-hmm. right? I said, I, I literally have not only the, the ideal background for this job in terms of what you're trying to accomplish, but then I also have this incredible passion mm-hmm. for it, right? So in many ways, I felt like, okay, from just purely from a, a strategic and marketing perspective, I believe I have the knowledge and the gut instincts of what needs to be done for the NFL to build and reinvigorate the brand and to help them be as successful in the next hundred years as they have in the last hundred years. And then I just also had this level of sort of personal passion for the NFL, which to me was the the absolute ideal situation that you could go into. Yeah, amazing. And when I was chatting with you before, you were telling me about the way that you work at the NFL. And some people may not actually know this. I mean, you are the league. Uh, You represent the league. You're the chief marketing officer of the league. But then there are clubs or teams, and then they can also have their own chief marketing officers at the individual club level. Can you talk a little bit about how your structure? The structure, yeah. Well, even I didn't know exactly what the role was at the NFL. I remember telling my mom uh, that I was was taking this job, and I was all excited about it. She's like, well, what are you going to do there? (laughs) What does the NFL need? marketing Tim so I said well mom I'm gonna figure that out and I'll let you know in uh, in a few weeks so but you know I we essentially work for the clubs right we work for the teams we work for 32 owners uh, of the NFL and they each have uh, marketing teams and PR teams on a, on a local basis at their clubs um, but we are responsible for the overall building of the NFL brand and engaging fans and audiences, right? And then of course there are, if you want to call them products that we have, uh, whether it be the NFL Network, uh, Thursday Night Football, NFL.com, things like that. Uh, We have passes and so forth that you can watch the games on digitally, all those things. Those are our products where we also engage and bring fans in. And then, you know, we monetize our own content with some of our partners as well. Great, wonderful. And we had one of your 32 owners on the show. Uh, wow. God, this is going back to January already. Wow, time flies. Uh, Julian Duncan, CEO yeah. of the Jacksonville Jaguars. Yeah. He was talking a little bit about how the Jaguars are also in, in London. So can you talk a little bit about the international perspective on football? Yeah, that's one of our growth opportunities and growth mm-hmm. areas. And it, it's going gangbusters when it comes to the UK market. We have several markets in Europe uh, and South America that do quite well. So, you know, we have several games per year in these markets. At this point, we don't have any teams there. Mm -hmm. But it is important for us to build a brand that the teams in the international markets can then uh, leverage that equity and leverage all the things that translate into what is the NFL and express that in in an authentic and powerful way in their own local markets. So, you know, we will fill up stadiums easily, for example, in the UK. Mm-hmm. It's not a difficult thing to do to bring games to, the, to, to London as an example and fill up those stadiums. But we are, of course, looking for the long term of building our presence there as well as, you know, other markets around the world. 
That is that's really fascinating. And you know, it's interesting because we we talk about soccer is now is called football in, mm-hmm. in the rest of the world, and now we have American football. And there, I think for a long time, people were wondering how much American football would be adopted. But it seems like it's going really well, and people are enjoying the sport beyond uh, the United States. So that's pretty exciting. Well, I worked in international marketing for uh, twelve years straight. And so I have a lot of experience in that. Mm-hmm. I, the markets in Europe that, that where products tend to do well from the United States mm-hmm. tend to be the same markets mm-hmm. uh, for almost yeah. every product. Yeah. And it has a lot to do with um, the culture and to what degree people in these markets embrace the culture mm-hmm. of America. So it's not surprising that two of our biggest markets in Europe are uh, the UK and Germany. Mm-hmm. Right? Because mm-hmm. most... If you work in international marketing for any amount of time, you usually see that the first market that will embrace and sort of do quite well for an American product is the UK. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Some of it has to do with the language, obviously mm-hmm. things around the language, and some of it has to do with just understanding and embracing the American culture. Yeah. Now, you yourself have spent quite a bit of time in Europe, and you had a yeah. very interesting <coughs> career path, too. So, take me back. Take me back to... Some about an oil rig, Japan, <laughs> Sweden, well, all the things. Then I have to go way back. Yeah. Yeah, I spent probably almost half of my adult life uh, overseas. I got out of high school, and I just didn't want to go into a university. I was too restless. And so I went into a theater conservatory and acted for a while, got out of school, uh, went into um, working in a repertory company for a short time. I just couldn't make the decision at that point whether I want to spend the rest of my life being a gypsy and moving around the world as an actor. And so I thought, well, I'm going to go to Paris and I'm going to figure it out. And so I went. Well, as most people, I, right? Let's go, know, go to Paris. Yeah. So I, you know, I gathered up about three thousand dollars and uh, I went over to Paris and I got a few courses. You know, studied literature and French and fencing of all things. And I lived there for a year and just had the most fantastic year of my life, I think, when I, while I was there. And during that period, I met all kinds of interesting people. And one of the people I met got me interested in moving over to Israel. So I said, well, I'm not ready to go home. <laughs> and that sounds kind of cool. And they had, you could go there and work in a kibbutz at the time. So I said, well, I'm doing that. <laughs> and I, I then went and worked in a kibbutz for about six months. I milked cows and drove tractors and... Did all kinds of fun stuff. Had about 25 you know, other kibbutzniks that we all lived together. And at that time, I met a guy from New Zealand who said, you know, Tim, you're still a very young person. If you spend the next four years of your life just moving around the world, you know, working in various jobs, you're still going to be a young person by the time you get back and start your work life. And I thought, wow, that is insane. That is so smart. <laughs> And that is so what I want to do. So, so I set off and, you know, I just had this amazing four years, additional, you know, it turned out to be five years of my life where I worked in different countries. I built oil rigs in Norway. I was an actor uh, and, and teacher in, in Tokyo, Japan. Uh, you know, I jumped on a cruise ship and was a bartender and would work for, you know, six to eight months and then get off and travel mm-hmm. and then get back on again. And, you know, because you, you didn't mm-hmm. have anything to spend your money on on that ship. So it was a great way to see the world and then uh, have money afterwards to travel. And during that period, I uh, met all kinds of interesting people. I read voraciously. 
And so at the end of that five years, I sort of decided that that was going to go back and I was mm. going to start university and start the real life, right? Right. But what was interesting is that when I did come back, I was well-read. Uh, I was obviously very mature. You know, I think I had a sense of universal truths and a level of empathy for all people. Mm-hmm. And I also was able to have very interesting conversations with people who were relatively senior up in in the companies I worked in. So I moved through the system very quickly. And I think if there's, I'm not saying everybody should do what I did, but one thing I will say is that because when I did, even though I started quite late in 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 my mid to late 20s, I had so much going for me by the time I started that I I moved through the system very quickly Mm -hmm. and I caught up in no time Mm -hmm. to people of my age, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, in the, in the agency business. So I thought I was going to be a journalist. Uh, Mm -hmm. I I studied journalism in school. I then decided that, Hey, this advertising thing is kind of interesting. It was a sort of commercial art. So it was all about how to understand and identify a big idea and then creatively express it. That to me sounded like the perfect way to live your life or the perfect way to you know live your work life and so i embraced that and i immediately set out to find the the best ad agency in the country and at that time this is during the early 90s there was this agency could be silverstein actually it was good be berlin and silverstein at that time and they were just doing the type of advertising that was changing the industry they were like these beautiful films that they were creating they had amazing directors and, and incredible human insights that they were always using and they were executing it brilliantly. And so, and they were winning, you know, every award that there was to win. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, I have to work there. And so I, I found a way to get in. I learned so much during my four years when I was there. Uh, I think it really kind of set my sights in terms of what, what are great ideas? How do you match human insights? How do you understand the business perspective and put it all together for a great marketing campaign and long-term business plan? I think at that point, I then wanted to go back on the road again. Mm-hmm. I was, again, restless. <laughs> and so my wife at the time, my ex-wife, ex-wife now, my wife at the time was Swedish. And I said, well, let's go to Sweden. That could be fun. I mean, <laughs> at that point, we had two young kids. And I said, the kids got to learn Swedish. And we can go over there for one or two years. And, you know, it'll be great. Kids will learn the culture. I'll learn the culture better. And, and then we can come back. The Goodby guys were... They were very gracious and very supportive of me leaving. And they said, hey, come back and you get your job back. You know, it mm-hmm. sounds like a great adventure. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I kind of had that security to go off and do something right. cool and interesting. So I went over there and wow, what an experience. I ended up spending 12 years wow. there in Sweden. And immediately was working on these big, interesting international brands. As an example, I was working for YNR over there in Stockholm and we were in charge of uh, Ericsson phones. Mm-hmm. And that was at a time when, you know, they were the number one handset in mm-hmm. the world together with Nokia. And we were literally going around Europe, the Middle East, and Africa mm-hmm. and opening up agencies and, and launching these products, skipping a whole level of telephony, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, going straight from no phone at all, no landline to, to the mobile phone. And it was, it was just so much fun and so fascinating to do. And... I was growing, I was, I was working with executives from around the world, and I was working with some great creative people internationally, so I was really, one of the, again, one of the highlights of my career. During that time, one of my biggest clients at one of the agencies I worked for was Volvo, and um, beautiful brand, uh, all about life and family and protecting your loved ones, and, and 
we were doing pretty good work in the brand, but at the time, totally screwed up in terms of the way they were managing yeah. their marketing and communications. It was a mess. Yeah. And so they asked me to come over and go on the client side. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, if there's any brand that I know and love, it's this one. And so I said, but it's broken. You know, the whole structure is broken. I said, I will do this, but you have to let me set it up to where I know I can be successful. And if I'm not successful, then fire me. Right. You know, just give me a shot at doing this. And I got in the right agencies. I got in the right directors. And before you know it, we were doing work that the entire industry was talking about, right? That literally to this day have become case studies, bringing in people like Spike Jones to do mm-hmm. uh, campaigns that ended up getting seven times the footfall into the dealerships that they'd ever had before. In fact, the first time I came to Cannes here to speak on the main stage was because of that campaign. Wow. We were using at that time, interestingly enough, because Scandinavia, they always lean into anything that is high-tech or digital, right? Mm. They're real pioneers. So that was a real opportunity for me. And we were doing campaigns in 2003 where the ideas were actually, the hub of the idea and the executions were on the internet. The the download times then were still pretty slow and so forth. Mm -hmm. And particularly for a big car company, it was sort of a radical way to move ahead Mm -hmm. and um, use mass media to drive people into the net. Today, of course, that's nothing. That's the way people do business. But in those days, it was was just not the thing that was being done. But it was highly effective. Partially, I think, because of who the audience of Volvo was, but also, I think, because it was just so different. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, we were really challenging people to think differently and to behave differently, and it was exciting. So from there, we did several years working with Volvo, had a lot of success. Uh, personally, I was very fortunate because there was a lot of press and a lot of opportunity for me to be recognized for the work that I was doing and for mm-hmm. my teams to be recognized. And so I was recruited at that point to go to uh, Volkswagen. And who doesn't want to write a page in the book of Volkswagen advertising? Mm -hmm. They're probably the most celebrated um, marketer in the history of of advertising. And I was so happy living there in Sweden and and working with Volvo, but I thought, I gotta do this. I mean, I have to, right? I have to be able to see if I can do something better than other people have done. So that, that sort of yearning to sort of make my to make impact and to, to write a page in the book of Volkswagen advertising was just too strong, so I had to go. And as you may know, where we ended up there, we did some, I think I'm very proud of all the work that we did, but one of the final campaigns and ideas that I did was that called The Force, a little mini Darth Vader ad that uh, pretty much won the Super Bowl mm-hmm. and won the hearts and the minds of everybody who watched that game. And to this day, I believe it's still the uh, the most uh, shared Super Bowl commercial of all time. It was a wonderful experience, and I think the things that I'm most proud of, in fact, Time Magazine wrote an article several years ago about the ad that changed the Super Bowl forever, Mm -hmm. you know, this ad, The Force. And the reason was that at the time, the conventional wisdom was you do not run your ad before the Super Bowl. You keep it, you hold it. And for that anticipation and excitement about the ads that are going to debut on the Super Bowl, that's that's what you do. So... We had created this beautiful, wonderful human ad that I knew everyone was going to love. And we had bought a 30-second spot because that's what we could afford. And the 60-second was by far superior, mm-hmm. right? by far. Yeah. And I'm like, 
we have to run the 60, right? We can't. So I tried everything in my power to get that 60 into the game and there was just nothing available. And so I said, well, this thing's gonna go viral. In my gut, I feel mm, that people yeah. are gonna love this spot. It's gonna go viral. So I said, we should release this on Wednesday on social media. Well, my goodness, that sparked off a debate of all debates. <laughs> like, no, you don't do that. You have to wait for the Super Bowl. It's not the way it's done. I know you're excited about this, but you know, everyone was telling me that's that's not a good idea. Right? And I'm like, yeah, but if, if we don't do that, right? then people will really never see how amazing this ad is and we're gonna get swallowed up by Chevrolet and all, all the big auto brands who had six, seven, eight spots in the game. So I made the decision that we would, we would run it on a Wednesday. I sort of made the bet that by the time Friday came around, everybody would be talking about this ad. And by the time that people saw the Super Bowl, they would already have it in their head mm -hmm. and they would be looking for it. Mm -hmm. And they would see the 60, they wouldn't see the 30. Right. And that's exactly what happened. You had almost 10 million views by the time the ad ran. And at that time, um, you have to remember that that was quite a few views. <laughs> Today, that's not that much. But in those days, that was a, that was a ton of views. So, but it really, it, it taught me to trust myself, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of gut informed by, you know, other insights that I knew in terms of what would happen with a great piece of creative on the internet at that time. But there comes a point where you just have to go with your conviction, yeah. right? And be willing to do things that... Uh, that maybe others uh, have not. Yeah. Well, okay. So, so much in there. Um, let's let's keep talking though about social media because one of the things that you were sharing with me before is the work that you're doing to help accelerate the application of social media, not just from NFL, the league, but acting as a support system also for the clubs or the teams, and then also the players themselves. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing there. So when I came to the NFL, one of the things that I realized that not only do we have this incredible audience and, and, and impact, you know, for the NFL, but like every other brand, we have strengths and weaknesses when it comes to our various audiences. Mm -hmm. And if not careful, because of the sheer numbers that we were getting, you could actually miss that, right, yeah. in, the, in the data. And the, I mean, the power of the brand was incredible. And of course, all the owners and Everybody who works at the NFL office knew that and was very proud of that for good reason. I mean, if you look at, for example, just last year, an average NFL game, if you took something which is so hot and so talked about and so anticipated like Game of Thrones, mm -hmm. well, if you match the finale of Game of Thrones to our, to our games, it would be number 74, right? Wow. So that's how, I mean... 73 yeah. games ahead of that had better ratings than, than Game of Thrones and a bigger audience. So that gives you some sense of the overall power. Well, right. on the one hand, that's obviously a, a massive strength to, to build upon. But what I found is that it was also in some ways stopping people from looking deep into what was going on mm. with, with the brand and with our audiences. Because, you know, like every other major brand that has young people and, and older generations in it, younger people had begun to sort of slowly but surely trickle away to do other things. Right. Right? And they were much more difficult to engage than audiences 35 plus because of the proliferation of media choices and inter entertainment choices, of course. Like all brands, the NFL was also suffering in terms of losing, losing fans. So I felt that our biggest opportunity to connect in a modern and authentic way was to be much better at using the players, mm -hmm. right, to connect with young people. 
but also to really tap into this NFL ecosystem because we weren't really doing that. We were quite good at the owned and operated level. All our web- websites and everything that we owned, we put out there. But there's these, all these other parts of the NFL ecosystem like colleges and the players themselves and the teams and influencers who love football. We weren't tapping into that means of expressing and sending out all, expressing what we wanted to talk about and sending out all of our content. So I started looking closely at the numbers. I found, well, if I just look at the footprint of the owned and operated that we have at the NFL, it's close to 60 million people, 60 million fans, which is pretty damn big. I mean, most most brands would die to have that volume of, of fans. But then I asked the guys to put together, well, how many, if you just look at all, the, all of our players, what's their social footprint combined? 330 million. Wow. Right? So then you add, you know, what we call the legends, some of the former players who are still active online, then you have half a billion. And then before you know it, you add all these potential audiences up, you have 750 million people right now there's the combined audiences of the, of the NFL. So we are not tapping into that. We are not leveraging that. That is a massive opportunity. So obviously the, the area that was the, the most low-hanging fruit, the things that we immediately set upon were the players, wow. right? <clears throat> so, and the players are great ambassadors because essentially fans love, they love their favorite teams and they love their favorite players, yeah. right? But we have a little bit of a disadvantage compared to other leagues in that we have helmets on all the time. Yeah. So, you know, fans don't see the players. They don't, they don't know really who they are. They know a handful mm-hmm. of players, and that's really it. You know, they, they take their helmets off, and most, most fans wouldn't be able to recognize a lot of stars even out there, right? So I had a whole helmets off strategy and then finding ways to sort of match the passion points of our fan base. And we, we saw that, we, you know, the opportunity here is to is to focus on three key verticals. Gaming, video games, music, and fashion. And a close fourth might be fitness, right? And that, of course, fits in with sports and, and football. But those three verticals were incredibly important because they were not only the most interesting areas of our uh, younger generation's lives, but they also happened to be the same passion points as the players, right? right? So it really was about matching these passion points of, of the players with with our with our fans so we now had put in systems to where we immediately get content on the field close and intimate to the players and great highlights to the players as soon as they play the game Mm -hmm. and get those to them so they can share it with their audiences Um, and sometimes we'll package together several things which they can send out and if you look at the numbers those are by far the ones that are the most engaging and get the biggest audiences that these players have the other thing we've begun to do is we created this army of correspondents. Okay, we, in fact, we call them LCC, so live content correspondents. And these are young people who basically have a camera and a phone. And not only do they follow these guys around the field to get these really close and intimate moments, because fans love to have that access on the field, but they also follow them now increasingly so in their everyday lives. Mm-hmm. So I talked about music, fashion, and gaming. Well, you know, guys like Jujus and the Schusters, one of the best video game players of Fortnite and Call of Duty and some of these other big games in the world. Well, when he streams and when he goes out and he meets other people who are into gaming, we follow them and we, we take photos and we help and we share that content. 
some of the guys are big into fashion, of course, and love, they all love music, of course, and they all have their favorite artists. Well, we help put those artists together with the players, Mm -hmm. and then we have these LCCs who follow them and get great content, give it to the players, they share it out. Um, Of course, they also share it with, you know, whether it be the musicians or DJs or um, fashionistas. And collectively, all of these folks who love football and who were basically going out and, and, and living their everyday lives, we're creating this content for them and then helping them deliver it. Mm-hmm. For the colleges, another big area, a huge opportunity. While we can't work with, by NCAA rules, we can't mm-hmm. work with college athletes um, until they come into the league, I thought like, well, we can work with their social teams, mm-hmm. we can work with their PR teams. Mm-hmm. So. We need these guys to start building out their profiles, building out their social footprint and their fan base before they even get into the draft, right? So we have a program now where we're going to start educating and enabling and inspiring all of these teams from the biggest NCAA colleges at the NFL. So we're going to bring them in and do like a master's program, if you will, and teach these guys best practices. And then they go back and, of course, then they're going to work with their athletes and... um, they will begin to build out their brands, if you will, and build and build up their fan bases before they ever get into the NFL. But again, I see the colleges as just another part of that ecosystem. Right. So, and then there's the influencer program. You know, essentially we are building on the three verticals, the four verticals, if you include fitness, uh, we, are, we are building an army of influencers. It has to be authentic. They need to love football. But if you just start really looking at all the big influencers, I mean, the, the biggest right now is probably Ninja. Right, who's a who's a gamer and the best mm-hmm. streamer on Fortnite, and if you watch closely on our um, two minute Super Bowl ad that we did, Ninja was actually had a cameo in the ad. <laughs> That's right? great. And he had it with, of course, who else but uh, Juju, right? <laughs> yeah. Because they had streamed together, but they had never met each other before. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> so we brought Ninja in, and uh, he was so excited. And then Tim the Tap Man, who's a friend of his, wanted to come too, so we brought him along. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was so fun watching Ninja and Juju meet each other for the first time. And they did a whole bunch of scenes together, and then we did custom content of just the two of them, which never was in the commercial, yeah. but then we gave it to Ninja to sort of you know share on his sure. channels, and then obviously later with Juju and us, we, we shared it as well. It was a massive success, right? Mm-hmm. So in some ways, it's as simple because we're bringing together people who naturally want to be together and who share common passions, mm-hmm. but you know it ended up being a very effective way and a very modern way to engage large audiences at scale bring them closer to the NFL. Yeah. So, uh, amazing. Um, and if we think about what you said about the, the colleges and the universities and really equipping them with social media knowledge and tools, I mean, you essentially had to do that as well for all the players and all the clubs or at least hold some sense of standard or at least a minimum entry of knowledge right. that everybody needs to have. Right. Like, when you... When you try to tackle that, you know, obviously everybody's knowledge of social media being all over the board, what are some of the things that you really focused on as, or was it really up to the players to make their own choices where they, they wanted to engage, if you will? It's totally up to the players. Mm-hmm. So the only way to really impact their, the building of their own brands is to earn their trust mm-hmm. and to offer them something of value. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. and you know, listen. As an account guy growing up in the ad world, I learned very quickly that the only way for me to really impact the creative product 
was to earn the trust of the creative people, right? right? So, and that's all based on being yourself and using your instincts and uh, trying to understand their world Mm -hmm. and then working with them to be a true partner, right? Mm -hmm. So we have already in a short amount of time, and listen, we we still have a long ways to go, of course, but already in a short amount of time, we have earned the trust of a lot of our players. And the reason we have done that is because we have worked with them, tried to understand them. It's clear to them that we're trying to help them build their brands, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, in NFL players, first of all, they're young guys, most of them, in their 20s. Mm-hmm. The average length of a, a, a career for an NFL player is only three years. Now, of course, there are some players who play a lot longer than that, but right. a lot of them don't. And so it's important for them to get as much out of building up their brands and, and positioning themselves for success after they play football as it is during when they're playing football. And like all of us, they also suffer from some anxiety around social. Yeah, like, what's the best way to do it? And, you know, and they're big competitors, right, too. So they want, to, they want to compete with the other guys in the other clubs and even within their own clubs. So, you know, we try to give them best practices. Mm-hmm. We look get very carefully at what they're doing. Mm-hmm. We try to, as I said before, we try to give them the right content that will help them, mm-hmm. you know, to be personal, to sort of open up about who they are and to be authentic, to share things around their personal lives and things like that. So it's not just around their great football moments, but also it's about them as people. Mm-hmm. But then, And then we have some programs. So not only do we have sort of tools and processes to get things out in a timely manner during the, during the season, we also have these great programs like one that we're about to do right now, which is we're going to bring the top players across the league to one place, and we're bringing in the top CEOs and visionaries of all the social platforms, mm-hmm. right? So everything from around Twitter and Twitch and Snap mm-hmm. and Instagram and Facebook. And we're, we're basically going to have sort of a very casual setting where they can teach all the players what's best practice on their platforms Mm -hmm. and then we're going to bring in some of the best influencers and best streamers in the world and they're also going to have a discussion with these guys and and talk about what's what's best practices how have i become such a such a big influencer these are the things that i do and these are Mm -hmm. the things that i have learned that work and then of course we give the chance for the players to ask them questions and things like that in Mm -hmm. a very casual setting we're going to talk about how to keep your cool and and not say things or go online about things that maybe emotionally get you upset, you know? Mm-hmm. What are the things that you can do in order to not do things that later on you're going to regret, right? right? So these are also important for athletes because they're, you know, they're constantly being trolled and yeah. they're 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 fans and sometimes even other players that are goading them and trying to get them into arguments <laughs> and things like that. So we have to, you know, we want to talk about that with them and Again, it's all up to them, whatever right. they want to do. But we, we at least want to give them insight and give them information that hopefully they will use to make, to make good decisions. And even, you know, we're going to have you know, some, some of the most famous DJs and musicians and stuff there as well. We're going to have a gaming area where they can learn things around streaming. We're even going to bring in guys who are experts in uh, jewelry, as an example, right? Because these guys love jewelry, right? They love big fashion. So... You know, they're going to they're gonna learn things which you, not just what to say and how to create great content, but also how to be cool, how to look cool, right? So it's just going to be fun. Can I go to this class? Yeah, no, that's, 
<laughs> Every time I explain this program, everybody says, "Can I come?" I know we need to so, like create like some some content from here. That you, well, of course, you'll probably keep it as your your secret weapons, right, or your competitive advantage. Yes, I mean no other no other. I will say this, you know, a lot there's a lot of sports leagues who do quite well in social, but no other sports league has done anything like this before. Right. I think that the the way that we are building out the system, right, mm-hmm. and the way that we are educating, enabling, and inspiring the players, mm-hmm. uh, to my knowledge, no other no other sports league is doing this. So I feel like I feel very excited about this and proud of the program because I truly feel like these are the kind of things which are on the cutting edge and that are sort of industry leading. Yeah. Absolutely, hundred percent. Well, unfortunately, Tim, we are um, we are out of time, but I want to keep just a, a couple of minutes here, I, I, and I want to squeeze this in. Um, okay. Two questions for you. First, what tips, you've given us a lot of tips for success, but what is your number one tip for success or number one thing that you've learned along the way that you say, absolutely, here's what I would share if I was talking to my younger self? It is all about building trust and building relationships, everything. Mm -hmm. As a CMO, there's only so much you can control. There's only so much you can do. Mm -hmm. If I look through my career and I think about all the things that I have been able to do, it all came down on me establishing great relationships across different divisions of the company that were not a part of my company. Mm -hmm. On the agency side, it was about great great relationships with the clients so they trusted me and with the creative people so Mm -hmm. that they trusted me. On the client side, it's all been about whether it be talent or whether it be about other business partners or, or whether it be, you know, with the creative agencies and things like that. It is, this is, it, this is all about relationships. Right. Of course you have to have talent. Of course you have to have the right instincts and the right experiences, but you cannot do it on your own. Mm-hmm. And all of the biggest successes that I have ever had have been done by me linking arms with other people and doing it together as a team. Yeah, great advice. You know, it's interesting. I, I just was in visiting Manhattan and I went to see a, a show on Broadway. I saw Chicago again. It's been years since I saw that, but I saw it again. And there's this song in Chicago, I just can't do it alone. And I keep, <laughs> I, you make me want to sing it. And because it's true, you just can't do yeah, things alone. You can. So, um, you got, now I'm going to sing that for the rest of the day. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, and, okay, my last question for you. I'm afraid to ask you this question because of all the things you already have done. But if you weren't the CMO of the NFL and money and talent were no object, you could do anything in the world that you haven't done already. Let, let me take it because you've done a lot. What would that be? Well, you know, I think, uh, well, first of all, I'm never going to retire because... I don't want to retire because I, I love I love what I do so much. So I can't even think about stuff like that. Um, but I, I think you know I think it would be um, fun to be a CEO. Oh. You know, I lots of people have asked me over the years like, why do you keep being a CMO? It's because I love it so much and mm. I feel like I'm pretty good at it and mm. I'm really contributing to to companies and to mm-hmm. and I and I'm creating great relationships and having a good time doing it. And, and so to me, that's what makes it all worth it. But I think, you know, it had to be the right type of company, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Maybe a creative-driven company that really is highly connected to its audiences and so forth. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, I love, like, building and driving teams. Mm-hmm. And so I think that the challenge, uh, an opportunity for me to 
be in charge of a company as a CEO, I really think uh, mm-hmm. would be something I just haven't done before. Yeah. I'd have to learn a lot, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but I feel like uh, it's just something that um, I would like to do at some point in my life. Well, right? Okay. Well, I'm going to have to keep my eyes on you. And <laughs> you'll have to keep us informed of any new moves you make uh, right. soon. But you've got a lot of moves still to make at the NFL. I do. Sir. I do. And uh, I can't wait to see the impact of everything that you're doing. Thank you so much for taking time out in beautiful Cannes to Thank come you. and share some, some cool stuff. Um, Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. And come back and see us again. We'll have to get an update from you uh, once everything is really rolling. Promise to do that. Absolutely. (laughs) Thanks. Have a good day. Thanks. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.